the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Your word is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cuts deep into my heart. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the show, the Tuesday edition. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas, and this is The Word to Stand Up for Life, a program committed to taking your phone calls and answering your Bible questions, questions about stuff going on in your life, anything that's on your heart. All you have to do is to call us. You can dial 210-340-9585. If you're outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. Numerically, that's 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com. Or you can use our free Calvary Chapel mobile app. If you are driving in your car, the safest way to call is use the free KSLR mobile app. Just hit the call now banner at the top of the screen and everything else is hands free. You'll be connected directly to our studio producer. Hey, thanks for tuning in. It's a Tuesday, so we don't have a bunch of stuff to talk about. So let me get right to questions. Here is a question from Anonymous, our email inbox. Uh, He or she says, we know that God is omniscient. Why did God create Lucifer, knowing that he was going to rebel and fall and take a third of the angels with him? Can the devil ever repent and get restored? God also knew that Adam and Eve would fall too. Why did God create the forbidden tree, knowing they were going to fall? Anonymous, good questions, and I'm going to take them one at a time because they're all important. Um, you're, you're right, God is omniscient. That means he knows everything. He knows the end from the beginning. He knows everything. But to answer the question, why did God create Lucifer? He created Lucifer as the most beautiful of all the angels. If you read Ezekiel 28 particularly, if you're looking at the King James Version, it makes it sound as though music, he was so beautiful, so majestic, that music emanated when his wings would would, would be raised. So um, uh, he created Lucifer um, to, to be glorious and wonderful. Um, the fact that he knew Lucifer was going to fall didn't stop him from creating Lucifer. Now, in our human perspective, we think, well, why wouldn't he, why would he do that? Why did he create him at all? Well, because God, whether it's angels or humans, anonymous, God gives everybody a chance to love him. God gives us a chance to make our own choices. And so one third of the angels, they had a choice and they made the wrong choice. Um, Lucifer became the devil. He made the wrong choice. Um, but, But God created them perfect, just like he created Adam and Eve perfect. And it wasn't God who who kept Adam and Eve from inheriting the fullness that God had for him. It was Adam and Eve that made the bad choices. Now, I think we've got to talk in this um, question a little bit about choice. Why would God give us a choice? And the answer is because God wants us to choose of our own free will to love him. Genesis says that we were created in the image of God. And what that means is two things, essentially. And the angels were also created in the image of God. In this sense, it means that we're all going to live somewhere forever. We're we're eternal beings. Once we come um, uh, into this earth, we're going to live somewhere forever. 
Um, it also means that we have the capacity to choose. Just like God chose us, we have to be willing to choose him. And to have an idea that God should create anything from happening that isn't in his perfect will is uh, a little bit troubling to me, Anonymous. I mean, think about all of the people that are going to spend eternity in hell, but who contributed wonderfully to this world. I mean, there's a lot of really brilliant people. There's a lot of, of uh, medical people. There's a lot of, of, of uh, philanthropic people. A- and they support a lot of really good things. Should God not have allowed them to be born? Is it your position that because God knows that they're not going to spend forever in heaven, is it your position that God should abort them in the mother's womb? Of course not. Of course not. So uh, God chooses us based on what he knows about our choice of him. But God still, the, the proverb says the sun rises and sets on the just and the unjust alike. And God gives people who are born, the same thing is true with angels, angels who were created by God. He gives those people an opportunity to enjoy this magnificent world that he's created. So the idea that God might, well, he's not going to believe in me, so I'm going to abort this baby, that's, that's simply contrary to the character and the nature of God. It, it's very important that we understand the role of choice. And if God didn't give us a choice, he would not be a loving God. He would be a, a monster. So God gives us a choice. To your question, can the devil ever repent and be restored? The answer to that is no. Uh, angels we know, not just the devil, but the third of the angels who fell with him, Unlike humans, we can repent until the time that we die. But unlike humans, angels had a one, once-forever choice. And they made their choice, and their lot was cast. Uh, people say, well, that's not fair. Remember, Jesus is principled. Who much is given, much more is required. And the idea here is that the angels saw God. They were created by him. They were around him. They attended the throne of God. They were accountable, the ones who made the wrong choice. uh, They're going to live with that choice forever and ever in eternity. And the same answer with Adam and Eve. Um, Why did God create the forbidden tree? The answer is because God needed them to choose. Who do you love, Adam? Do you love me? Or do you love Eve? And that really was the choice that Adam made. So, God's not responsible to keep a world perfect. Sin entered the world, uh, but Adam and Eve, the first two, had to have a choice, and they made the wrong choice. So, Anonymous, I hope that makes sense to you. Remember, uh, God doesn't create people today. The process of, of being born is what creates us, and, um, and then God allows us to live. Let's go to my friend Ruben from Seguin on line one. Ruben, good to hear from you. You're on the air. God bless you, Pastor Ron. Thank you for uh, <laughs> taking my call again. Um, I'm reading in the book of Mark. As you know, I've told you that I've been, you know, reading. Um, but I stopped for a while because things were getting crazy in my life. But that's my fault. I should not allow the enemy to take me away from the Word of God. So I came back slowly, but I'm coming back. So I'm reading in Mark, uh, I mean, uh, yeah, Mark 11, uh, 13, well, 12, about the fig tree. When his disciple, when Jesus and his disciples were walking, uh, you know, it says Jesus was hungry, seen in the distance a fig tree in a leaf. He went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves, because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, may no one ever eat from uh, you again. Now, my question is this. There's there's two things that kind of stood out to me. Uh, when he saw the fig tree, he saw that it didn't have leaves, and he went to it anyways. And then it says a reference to it says because it was not the season for fig trees, that stood out to me. And then when he cursed it, my question is, if it wasn't time 
uh, the season for fig trees, why did Jesus uh, curse it? Hmm. Good question. It's a, it's, a, it's a complicated answer, but it's a good one. Uh, it's good to hear from you, Reuben, and, and you're right. Don't let the enemy keep you from um, being in the Word of God. By the way, I'm going to start the Gospel of Mark uh, right after I finish 1 Corinthians. I've got, I think, three more studies or four more studies in 1 Corinthians, so you can follow along with us, Reuben. Um, th- this whole thing, this is um, uh, just prior to Jesus being sacrificed. Um, the previous day had been a horrible day for Jesus. He overturned the money changers' tables. Um, he um, uh, he knew he was going to his death. Um, after a whole day of ministry, um, he went to Bethany that evening to rest. And as they were leaving Bethany to come back um, to prepare for the Passover, to prepare for the triumphal entry, uh, I love the fact that it says Jesus was hungry. He was God, but he was hungry. And he saw a fig tree in leaf. Now, typically, we have a fig tree. Let me rephrase. We had a big fig tree in our backyard. We don't any longer in our new house. But um, typically, when there are leaves on a fig tree, you're going to find figs. And uh, Jesus uh, saw it. It, it. it bore some promise of some early season figs. And he was hungry. So he wanted. And I always picture Reuben, Jesus with his hand dug all the way to the bottom. Fig trees are sticky and they're sharp. And the, the leaves will cut you a little bit. Um, but, but I always picture Jesus sort of looking around. And when he couldn't find any fruit, uh, it was a moment of righteous frustration. And here's what I mean. The day before, Jesus had gone to the temple. He checked it out. That's why he's coming back. He's going to turn over the money changers' tables. And he said, this is my father's house, and you've made it the den of thieves. So his father's house wasn't what it appeared to be. That same day, he would look at the religious leaders in their long, flowing robes, looking all spiritual. And he knew they were plotting his murder. So the religious leaders, whose job it was to represent represent God to the people and represent um, um, the people to God, um, they were murderous in their heart. So they weren't what they were supposed to be. And now, as he sees this fig tree, it's just one more thing, sort of the straw that broke the camel's back. Um, One more thing that isn't what it advertised itself to be. And I think Jesus took this opportunity to make this a living sermon illustration that his disciples would remember forever. Yesterday it was the religious leaders. Yesterday it was the house of God that that they turned into a den of thieves. And now, and now it's this fig tree. And he cursed it. And of course his disciples were amazed when they saw it, uh, that it it died so quickly. I think the the sermon illustration... um, Reuben is as simple as him saying, uh, this is what happens to those who oppose me. And I think that's that's all it is. The triumphal entry, when he comes into Jerusalem, he sees the people lying in the street shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And yet the truth is, he knew their heart. So I just think it was just one more thing that wasn't what it was supposed to be. And Jesus, in a moment of righteous frustration, simply used the opportunity to curse the fig tree and provide a living sermon illustration. Thank you for the question, Reuben. Good always to hear from you. Three four zero ninety five eighty five for your live calls and questions. Here is a question from Mary. Mary said, is there such a thing as biblical tithing, which I'm supposed to give 10% of the money that's getting deposited to my account? Is that the least I should be giving to the church? Many churches, especially mega churches, refer to Malachi 3.10, which I believe talks about taxation, and Luke chapter 6, verse 38, which talks about judging others. Is it okay for churches to use these verses? If you do believe in biblical tithing, what verses can be used? Now, before I go any further in your question, Mary, uh, I love the fact that you're looking at these passages of Scripture in context. Because Luke chapter 6, verse 38 
Uh, you're absolutely right. That's the context. And Jesus is basically saying, what measure you use, it will be measured to you. And Malachi, while I don't agree that it's talking about taxation, I, I think the Old Testament, the tithe, uh, 10%, um, was in part a temple tax. Um, so uh, I think it was also talking, uh, Malachi is also talking about giving, do, doing their responsibility. So let me finish what she wrote and then we'll, we'll, uh, I'll answer the question. She said, I belong to a church and they preach that we should be giving 10% of our gross income. Sometimes I feel convicted or condemned that I'm not giving my full 10%. Also, do you believe it is okay to give some money to the church and a charity like St. Jude's or Christian Ministry or all my money should be given to the church? I personally feel like God is not asking for 10% when everything belongs to him. I feel like the Bible teaches us to give generously, and that is all he requires. I may uh, I may have to look for another church. There's so much to unpack here, Mary, and I want to do my best uh, to do it. First, let me say, I do not believe, nor do we teach here at Calvary Chapel, that tithing is a New Testament principle. Not at all. Um, tithing was um, a, a requirement of the law. Uh, it was the law given to Israel, and I think when people are are constantly um, using the tithe to make people feel guilty, I think that misrepresents God, and I think it misrepresents God horribly. Having said that, there's a lot of wonderful people, a lot of pastors who 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 teach that that tithing is the least we should be giving to the ch- local church. And their basis is, well, the tithe actually appears in Genesis when Abraham gave a tenth to Melchizedek. And so it predates the law, and, and the, their argument, logically, it would also post-date the law. I don't agree that that's true. Jesus doesn't say anything about tithing. The New Testament doesn't say a word about tithing. Jesus only, in talking to Jews, says it is you tithe, and it is right that you do so. But remember, Jesus himself was under the law. And the Jews that he was ministering to were under the law. So that's the context there. Um, So uh, uh, everything I'm going to say from this point forward is on that basis. I believe that we ought to teach in the New Testament construct what the Bible teaches about giving. That we ought to give generously. We ought to give hilariously. uh, And never under compulsion. And never being condemned to give. Uh, I get so frustrated, Mary, with... Uh, uh, radio programs, uh, uh, Christian television shows, uh, uh, not to mention, as you did, Christian churches that are always trying to make people feel real guilty. If you listen to Christian radio, and obviously you do because you asked this question, uh, on most programs, people say, if you want this program to remain on the air, then we need you to give your generous gift, and then we'll give you a gift of, and then the gifts vary. But it's manipulation. It's marketing. And I just don't think... uh, I I think Jesus would turn over a lot of... um, tables in the modern day church um, so what is our approach give generously now marry two things it's your money God has blessed you with it it's your responsibility to ask God what he wants you to do with it and I promise that he will tell you when our announcer makes the giving announcement it takes just seconds really and he says, uh, uh, give to the Lord with a cheerful heart. Ask him how much and when, and he'll tell you how much and when to give. Uh, it is the responsibility of Christians to support their local church. That's undeniable. Uh, 10% might be a good starting point. But remember in your letter, you said you believe that we're to give generously. How much more is grace worth than law? How much more is grace worth than law? Should we be giving the minimum when God has been so generous? Proverbs chapter 11, I think it's verse 25, says that a generous man himself will be blessed by God. And when we're generous, God is so pleased. Jesus, when he was teaching his disciples this lesson, he was watching the temple treasury as people were lining up to give their money. And there were a lot of rich people there giving a lot of money. And Jesus pointed out one woman an old widow who gave two mites. That's all, just, just our equivalent of just pennies, a, a couple of pennies. And Jesus said to his disciples, I tell you the truth, 
this woman gave more than all of the others. And the sense there in Greek is that they gave more than all the others combined. She gave more than all the others combined. Now, the disciples would look and say, no, they put in a lot. She put in a little. We can't do anything with a little. But Jesus said she put in all she had to give on. Now, Mary, here's the import for you. Everything you have belongs to God. Not 10% of it. Not 12%. Not 80%. Everything you have belongs to God. If you cannot give generously, if you cannot give without feeling guilty, I can tell you right now that God hates the fact that you feel guilty or or feeling condemned about giving. God would say, don't give. If you give feeling condemned, there's no reward for giving. So why would we do it? So how should we respond? Lord, everything that I have is yours. How much of your stuff do you want me to keep? And he'll tell you. And that's when you live the abundant life Jesus is talking about. There's a principle, and I hate using it sometimes because it's so abused in uh, in, in our, our prosperity churches. Um, um, it's reaping and sowing. Uh, what you sow, you will reap. And you can't outgive God. I just hate the fact that churches are manipulating people and making people like you feel guilty or condemned. So here's what I think you ought to do. I think you ought to forget about a percentage at all. And then what I think you ought to do is say, okay, Lord, uh, look how much money you blessed me with. You gave me the skill to do this, and I'm working hard to bring you honor and glory. But Lord, what do you want to do with your money? And then he'll tell you what to do with it. And when you do that cheerfully, and without any condemnation at all, I promise you, he will bless you abundantly. Now, let me say this very clearly. This is not give to get. Okay, I'm going to give to God. So he'll have to bless me with more. Remember, in, in everything that we do, motive is everything. So, no, I don't think we ought to be giving 10%. I think, personally, we ought to be giving a whole lot more than 10%. And God knows your circumstances. He knows your problems. There's actually been women and men in our church uh, who we've told, stop giving so much. Get out of debt. Make yourself able to serve the Lord. Um, God always provides for us. And he will do the same thing, Mary, for you. Please, please, please um, don't ever feel condemned or guilty, um, even convicted, Give to God generously because God is generous and he loves you. Mary, thank you very, very much. 340-9585. I think we're coming down to the end of our first half hour. Uh, Here is a question uh, anonymously. It says, uh, I don't mean to sound skeptical, but I don't believe Jesus is in our hearts. He is in heaven. Why do we say he's in our hearts? Anonymous, that is a wonderfully perceptive question. I used to struggle with this very same thing. I would try to imagine a little Jesus running around in my heart. Uh, and, and of course, this is metaphor. Jesus doesn't live physically in our hearts. Now, he lives positionally there. But he doesn't live physically. Jesus is, as you know, see, seated at the right hand of God. Uh, Jesus is seated at the right hand of God in heaven. Um, but Jesus consumes our heart. This is metaphor. This is poetic language to to understand that Jesus owns every bit of, our, of, of who we are. So um, physicality, Jesus is not in our hearts. But positionally, because we owe him everything, Jesus is in our hearts. And that's what we say. The heart is sort of the, the, the resting place of all things that are important, all things of value. And when we say Jesus is in my heart, what that ought to mean is that Jesus is the priority of our lives. So, Anonymous, you're right. Jesus doesn't physically live in our hearts, but positionally and spiritually, in terms of him being the priority, uh, that is exactly what we ought to understand. Thank you for that question. I used to struggle with that as a brand new believer. And uh, every time I try to imagine a little Jesus running around my heart, I thought, that just doesn't work. Uh, Jack says, when I pray, I try to imagine what God looks like. Is this okay? And how can I pray effectively? Uh, Jack, you can't imagine what God looks like. God the Father lives in unapproachable light. 
No one can see him and live uh, in in sinful bodies. So so I, I think this can be a little bit dangerous in the sense that the enemy will have an opening to sort of mess with you. Um, if you want to imagine what God looks like, imagine Jesus. He's the exact representation. He is the radiance of God the Father. It's the, 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 the express image, we're told. And if he's the express image, the way I always imagine, if God the Father was able to look in a mirror like you and I can look in a mirror, the image he would see is Jesus. So the way for you to, to pray is to pray to, with, and for Jesus. And we don't have to imagine what Jesus looks like because he was here. Now, we don't know the details. There's no physical description of Jesus other than he was very ordinary in appearance. There was nothing about him that that would convince us that he was God. But the idea here is that Jesus showed us who God is, his character, his nature, his love. So, Jack, just think about Jesus. And prayer will be a lot easier, I promise. We've got 30 minutes left in our Tuesday show, 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. We'll be back in two minutes. We'll see you then. back to the word to stand on for life we're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll free 877-630-KSLR now here's pastor ron arbaugh welcome back to the program in our final 30 minutes today 340-9585 for your live calls and questions here's a question from michael from our email inbox hi pastor ron can you expound on these verses malachi Chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, declares, I have loved you, says the Lord, but you ask, how have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, the Lord says? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated, and I have turned his mountains into a wasteland and left his inheritance to the desert jackals. Not sure if the Bible has this accurate, but does God have hatred for people? Why did God have love for Jacob, but had hate for Esau? We've got what we've got here, uh, Michael, is Hebrew parallelism. This is a, a literary, literary tool, and it doesn't mean, and I'll explain why in a moment. Um, we'll talk about Bible verses. Um, it doesn't mean that God hated Esau. It just means that the love that he had uh, for Esau was an unrequited love. So the result was, though, the result of Esau's life, a life lived in rebellion against God, the result of that life, if you compare it to the life that Jacob lived, ultimately, and remember, Jacob was no um, prince. I mean, he, Jacob was, was not a man of noble character. Uh, but, but God declared in the womb that the older would serve the younger. In other words, Jacob would have the blessing. Now, why would God say that? Well, the answer is because while God pours out his love to both of the twins, just as he does to you and to me, there are people who take advantage of that love and allow God to bless them. And then there are other people who completely reject that love and they end up living lives that are cursed, sometimes for time and certainly for eternity. So we know that God didn't hate Esau because God is love. Jesus said that. And because God is love, he is incapable of hate. It is a, a violation of his nature. Now, um, people say, well, it says hate, so why don't you take it? Well, you've got to really understand um, who God is. Um, God loves people, for God so loved the world. And that's true from the very beginning of time. There are some things God hates. He hates sin. Proverbs chapter 6, beginning in verse 16, says there are six things the Lord hates, seven, actually, that are detestable to him. Again, that's just another literary tool. Uh, Proud eyes, haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked schemes, feet that are quick to rush into evil, 
uh, a false witness who pours out lies and a man who stirs up dissension among brothers. So those are the things that God hates. But the reason he hates all of those things, Michael, is because when we are guilty of those things, then we are separated from the very thing Jesus died to provide. And that's access to God, fellowship with God. So this isn't one of those things where, where God just arbitrarily, and this is one of the reform position difficulties. You know, they've got God in heaven saying, well, well, you I love, you I hate. You go to heaven, you go to hell. That's to misunderstand the character and the nature of God at all. Uh, let me recommend for you a Bible study that I did in Romans chapter 9. You can go to calvaryessay.com. And I gave a, a really detailed explanation of why. Why would God not bless Esau? After all, he was the firstborn, and that's the one the blessing usually went to. Well, God knew that Esau was going to sell him out for a bowl of stew. God knew that he didn't care at all about the things of God, and in fact only wanted the blessing of his birthright because he wanted selfishly. All his motives were wrong. So God doesn't hate anyone. You know, we Christians are quick to say God... Um, hates the sin but loves the sinner. And that's true. I think we use it incorrectly, but, but, but that principle is true. God hates sin because it separates us from him, the very thing he sent Jesus to accomplish. So, Michael, I hope that makes sense to you. That is a uh, good question. Let's go to Cindy from San Antonio on line one. Cindy, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Hi, Pastor Ron. Thank you for taking Hi. my call. I haven't I heard from little- you for a while. I know. I listen every day. I just, um, I've been drinking coffee. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad you said coffee. I thought you'd say, I've been drinking. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> no, actually, a really, really sweet sister in California that we know sent me four bags of the Black Rifle coffee of different ones, um. and I've been sampling one of those every day. That's <laughs> a blessing. Plus, I got my booster, too, so I'm real happy about that. But you know what? The question you had before the break about Jesus living in our hearts, that kind of perplexed me because I thought that when we accepted Jesus as our Savior, that the Holy Spirit took residence and lives in our hearts. So maybe you could untangle that a little bit because I always thought he lived there. So I'll, I'll listen to you on the radio. Thank you, Cindy. I can do that. Remember, I said that that figuratively, metaphorically, we say God lives in our hearts. That's a description of our devotion to God. Uh, His commitment to us. uh, Romans 5.5 says God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit that he's given. Um, but, But you see, that's what happens. We have the capacity to love. But it's not physicality. You know, the Holy Spirit's not in our heart saying, hey, hey, let me out, let me out. And Jesus isn't in our heart running around. Now, Cindy, I'm going to give you a, a, an explanation that um, over the years I've said a hundred times at church. But I think it, it, it helps us understand what this is. I get up in the mornings and I always picture a throne of, you know, for a king uh, in my heart. And um, since I don't wake up the best usually, um, I, I want to see who's sitting on that throne. Usually it's me. So I have to go through the process of saying, okay, Lord, I want to live for you today. This day belongs to you. So I, I disinvite myself. I get off the throne of my heart. That throne belongs to Jesus. And then I invite Jesus to take his rightful place on the throne of my heart. Now, there is neither a throne in my heart nor a Jesus in my heart, but the principle works wonderfully. So whether it's the Holy Spirit who pours out his love into our hearts, it's just saying into our beings, into our innermost beings, um, uh, there, there are other references to the same thing, bowels and, 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 and our inward places in the Bible. But it's just a, a poetic way of saying, that Jesus consumes us. And we know that that's his desire. He wants us to be consumed by him and for him. But it it isn't in physicality. It's not uh, a little Holy Spirit or a little Jesus running around in our heart. It's just a way of explaining that, oh God, my heart belongs to you. And that's what we need to remember all the time. 
Cindy, thank you for the question. I appreciate it very, very much. You know, I've said that before in, in Bible studies and stuff. And uh, that really upsets people. No, he's in my heart. I know he's in my heart. But he's not there physically. If he's in your heart relationally or positionally, believe me, that's all Jesus asks for. Thank you. Randy says, Pastor Ryan, is the third heaven Paul Paul saw and paradise the same place? Uh, No, Randy, they're not the same place. Um, uh, Paradise, of course, is in the center of the earth in the the abyss. Um, It's empty now. Uh, but before Jesus was crucified and risen, that place was occupied by the righteous dead uh, awaiting the, their inheritance. Um, but the third heaven that Paul saw, it's not like there's a first heaven and a second heaven. Paul was talking about the, the dwelling place of God. He was transported through uh, the air. That would be the first heaven, outer space, what we call outer space. That's the second heaven. The third heaven, Paul is simply saying, I was transported way beyond outer space and I was taken into the very presence of God in the very throne room of God. And when that happened, he saw inexpressible things, things that man is not permitted to tell. But they're not the same place at all, Randy. The uh, third heaven is just Paul's language to describe that I went to be in his presence. I used to pray every night as I went to bed. I don't any longer. Well, occasionally I do, but, but not often. I used to pray every night that God would take me to heaven like he took Paul. He never has. But I just thought, oh, Lord, I need to be sure that I'm walking in your will. I need to be sure that the decisions I'm making are decisions that are pleasing to you because they're in your will. And there are times when things look so bad, and I thought, Lord, this is the way I expected things to turn out. And I would beg him, take me. And and he would just, I think, smile at me. And say, it's okay, just keep walking with me. So, Randy, the third heaven that Paul, Paul saw is descriptive of the throne or the dwelling place of God the Father. Thank you very, very much for the question. Ken asks a question that we get quite often. Who are the people who came out of the tombs in Matthew 27? Specifically, Ken, we don't know. We know that they're the righteous dead. They're Jews who, uh, when Jesus' tomb was open, an earthquake uh, occurred. The tombs were open, and just as many of the righteous dead were were seen walking in the streets of Jerusalem. Now, they they became um, uh, uh, witnesses for uh, the veracity of Jesus' death, his burial, and his resurrection. But remember, this happened when the tombs were opened, and when he raised them, they came out. So in other words, they were in the tombs, but then they came out. And I'm sure, Ken, that what they would have done is tell people about this Jesus. Now, we don't know what happened to them. That is the only mention of them. None of the other gospel accounts even hint at it. So this is one of those verses that we're we're truly left to wonder about and we won't find out for sure uh, who they are or, or, or what it meant. Um, I actually believe in my heart that it's just a, a, a sort of a foreshadowing of greater things to come. All I know is it would have been spooky if you were in Jerusalem and you saw... It doesn't say if they were recently dead. It doesn't say if it was, you know, Abraham, Isaac, or Jacob, or or uh, Moses or David. It didn't say if they were... Were, were well-known people. It just says, uh, righteous dead, the people who believed, the people that were waiting for the consolation of Israel. Thanks for the question. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Matthew says, when fighting spiritual warfare, I put on the full armor of God, but it doesn't work. What am I doing wrong? Um, Matthew, the full armor of God, and I, I don't know what process you go through, but, but let me just share with you experiences I've had with other people. Um, it's, it's beyond the, the piece of armor itself, like the, the helmet of salvation. Uh, you know, people will often say, well, I doubt my salvation. Well, put on the helmet of salvation. And what that means is you've got to use it. You know, in a battle, all, all those tools have no value if you're not using them. 
And so you've got to get dressed in them every day. Now, this is obviously figurative language. Paul was in prison. He was actually looking, as he was inspired uh, to write this to the Ephesians, uh, he was inspired by the, the, the safety equipment that um, the the people guarding him had. And he would look at this imposing Roman soldier, and he would say, you know, he's covered from head to toe. And here's what he's saying. He said, when we're in the middle of a spiritual warfare, we got to be covered head to toe. Now, let me simplify this for you. You said it doesn't work. Um, Matthew, be with Jesus. You know, Jesus is called in Hebrews our elder brother. It's not a shame to call us his brothers. We're family. Uh, he's, he's a big brother. Big brothers, in part, protect their younger siblings. So when the enemy's attacking me, I don't want to talk to the enemy. I don't want to spend even an ounce of my energy. So here's what I do. I recognize that the enemy is at work. And I'll just say, Jesus, because, again, he's right here with me. Jesus, you take care of him. I want to think about you. I want to talk to you. Um, so you got you got to take advantage of Jesus' presence. The devil is no match. Now he'll huff and puff and threaten to blow your house down, but he's no match for Jesus. So this isn't a matter of saying, "Okay, I'm going to put on uh, my, my the sandals on my feet to spring into action. Uh, I'm going to put on the, the breastplate of righteousness." It's just remembering what those things are and what they do. You're feeling condemned. The breastplate of righteousness is being condemned is impossible. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So get a little bit away from the, the, the equipment that the Roman soldier had and then think about what that equipment does. If I'm under attack and Jesus is, or I'm sorry, the, the devil is is questioning my salvation and I'm starting to, to think, well, am I really saved? Uh, the helmet of salvation protects me. I feel like, oh, I disappointed you, Jesus. I'm so sorry. I blew it again. And you're feeling condemned. I can remember is that the breastplate of righteousness, the breastplate covers the, the heart, the important parts, the vital organs. And so that's how you use these things. The sword. The sword. Matthew, if, you're, if you've got your Bible, the Bible is your sword. If you've got your sword, uh, it cannot not work. And I know that's a double negative and that's terrible. But, but for emphasis, if you've got your sword with you, and if you're in the Word, and if you're doing what it says, the power of the Holy Spirit will be so strongly upon you that you won't have any issues at all in resisting the enemy when he comes to you. Let's go to Victor on line one. Victor, thanks for holding. You're on the air. Afternoon, Pastor Ron. Good afternoon. I had a question. I had a question of, about uh, one of my kids asked me uh, uh, about uh, heaven and uh, the people that died uh, way back uh, when before even Christ uh, was crucified, and 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 I showed him that verse where where there where there's a there's a gulf fixed between heaven and hell, and about the uh, uh, Lazarus and, the, and uh, the the beggar and and the rich man and the beggar died, mm-hmm. and, you know, and all that. And uh, so, that, so uh, I told, as far as I can remember, if I'm not mistaken, that that uh, the, that that part of heaven was no longer there. That uh, when Jesus went down and preached down there uh, after, during his uh, while he was buried after he was crucified and he died, uh, that. Then he took them with him up to the third heaven. And I, yep. I'm just not sure if I'm accurate about that. Victor, not only are you accurate, but I'm thrilled that you're you're reading the Bible to your kids and they're asking you questions. Uh, this is what Christian parenting is all about. Yeah, it's Luke chapter 16 and uh, the, the place called Paradise. It's still there. It's just empty. Um, when Jesus descended into the lower parts of the earth after his death, um, and, and before his crucifixion, he descended into the lower parts of the earth. And the Bible says he led captivity captive. Now, they were in paradise. Paradise is a good place. But they were still held captive. They still hadn't realized the fullness of their their their, their reward yet. So Jesus went down. He preached a victory message. He wasn't preaching a message to give them a second chance. He was preaching a, a victory message. 
and simply declaring that, that death no longer has any power over people in the world because of, of his sacrifice on the cross. So he, he led them to heaven. Uh, they received their reward. Um, I always just get thrilled thinking about what it must have been like when the ground began to shake and light would have come into that place, uh, this this light, um, blinding light. Jesus, the angels that would have attended him. I mean, this was a moment heaven had been waiting for. And he led those who were victors in his train. And instantly they were in the presence of Jesus. So you had it exactly right, Victor. Good for you. Three four zero ninety five eighty five. Thank you, Victor. Uh, Here's a question from Tran. He says, is there a way to know for sure that I'm in the will of God? Um, Tran, yeah, I think there is. Um, um, I get some heat for saying this, but I think Romans chapter 12, uh, verses 1 and 2 are a formula. Now, the Bible doesn't have a lot of surefire formulas, but this is one of them. Brethren, I urge you, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve God's perfect, pleasing, and acceptable will. So, Tran, I think if you are submitted to God, you've offered your life to Him. And I'm not talking about just the the salvation transaction. I'm just saying if you really understand what He's done, and you say, Jesus, I'm yours. I want what you want. I want nothing else. That's our reasonable response to what God has done for us. And 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 I think we will know that we're in the will of God. I also think, Tran, uh, in a more practical level, there is, um, I say, just be with Jesus all the time. Uh, if you're not in the will of God, you cannot be with Jesus. It doesn't mean you're not saved, but but you can't be with Jesus. So, Uh, As long as I'm with Jesus today, I know I'm in his perfect will, and I'm able to trust that his will is the only place I want to be. I think too often, Tran, what happens to us, and I referred to this in in a response to a question in the first half of the program today. I think too often we look at circumstances and we conclude, wait a minute, I must not be in God's will, or or this wouldn't have happened. Sometimes God's will, his perfect will, leads us into really difficult places. When Jesus was baptized by John in the Jordan River and the, the, the Spirit of God descended on him in the form of a dove, and the first place that the Spirit led Jesus was into the wilderness to be tempted directly by the devil himself. Forty days of no food or water, and then finally at the end of the 40 days, Satan is right there to tempt him. That was being led by the Holy Spirit. I think sometimes we're too quick to um, assume that well, if if I'm in God's will, everything is going to be everything's going to work out just fine, and it means that we have expectations of what it's going to be like, and God clearly leads us into places of testing. First Corinthians four two, it is required that every man given a trust by God must prove faithful. It was the Spirit of God that led Abraham to offer his son Isaac. So the will of God sometimes takes us into really scary and difficult places. And we have a tendency to look and say, well, this wouldn't be happening if I was in the will of God. So, Tran, just be with Jesus. Just be with Jesus. I love that. I absolutely love that. Final question of the day. Here is a question from Brian. He said, Pastor Ron, is there a way to be sure the Bible is accurate? Uh, Brian, I got three minutes to try to convince you that this is the most important question of your Christian walk. You've already settled the the, the idea that Jesus is uh, the Son of God and God the Son, that he died for your sins, he didn't stay dead, now he's your Savior and he's your Lord. But if we're going to follow him, if we're going to know who he is, the only way we can do that is in the Bible. So, Brian, this is a question that you've got to settle in your own mind. I can tell you yes I am 100% certain that the Bible is infallible, that it's inerrant. Um, um, It it has the answer to every question, every problem that we will ever face uh, in life, either specifically or in principle. 
And and I, I made that determination with a lot of research. Uh, when I first got saved, I didn't know how the Bible could be written by God and written by men. That made no sense to me as a brand new believer. So I realized, and again, I think logically, I realized, Brian, that that if I was going to follow Jesus, if I was going to know what to do, I had to find out if the Bible was really the Word of God or if it was just a book. And I spent three months, and sometimes it takes longer, sometimes it doesn't take that long. Paula, um, she she just believed it. She, she tells a story that she just believed it. When, when somebody gave her a Bible and said, this is the Word of God, she just believed it. For me, I had to have all my questions answered. And I remember taking about three months and, and, and just really, really digging in, looking at commentaries, uh, looking at the Bible, um, what about this and what about this. And when, when I had gone through that process, um, I, I didn't think I was done, but there, there came a moment, I was at a, a library, a school of theology, and I was all in this room, all by myself, with books stacked up everywhere. And it was as though, and when I say that, I don't want anybody to think weird stuff happened, but it was as though Jesus was in that room with me, sitting on the other side of the table, asking me, okay, are you convinced? What more do I have to convince you of? I've answered all of your questions. And from that moment, Brian, I have been absolutely certain that the Bible is the literal Word of God. And uh, you've got to make that decision for yourself. You can't base on what other people say. You can't search on the Internet. You need to open your Bible. You need to wrestle with Jesus. Take the difficult things, the, the, the issues that are really troubling you, and let Jesus reveal to you the veracity of his word. Hey, thank you for the calls and for the questions today. You've been listening to The Word to Stand On for Life. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. I'll be back, Lord willing, tomorrow at 4 o'clock on AM 630 The Word. We'll see you then. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4 And Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.